0: You're listening to The New World Order, my name name's Klaatu, and in this episode we continue our tour of bin utils. Bin utils is a package in Slackware in the software set D for Delta. It contains a bunch of things having to do with uh, compiling code specifically, getting things into a binary format so that your computer can execute it as an application. We've already covered AS and LD, which are the, the big stars of that package. That's the reason that the package really, really exists, is the assembler, GNU assembler, and GNU linker. We did that in a previous episode, so this time we're, we're on to, um, I don't know, the, more of the utilitarian things. I mean, even AS and LD are, are arguably very much utilitarian, you don't usually interact with them directly. They are things that happen through GCC. And in this episode, we'll start out with C Filt. But 1st going to take an email. Got an email from Deep Geek, and he was saying, I was thinking about the idea of an immutable OS. Uh, this is in reference to episode 377 in which i discussed silver blue by fedora so he says i was thinking about the idea of an immutable os and looking it up online i discovered that there is also an open sus version of this idea called micro os i was wondering how a debian guy could have something similar he says could the same benefits be had by a debian user after installing a base command line only system and adding x support, taking the mount point for slash user, and putting it into a read-only compressed file system like, say, squashfs, and then installing another Debian system for all the other packages into a cheroot environment. I'm thinking this and adding a flat pack or two for some apps would have essentially the same effect. A user of such a system could then remount the slash usr directory monthly or something just for security updates, and then re-squash it. What do you think? Would this reap similar benefits as silver blue and Micro OS? This is obviously a really intriguing question, and brings to mind a lot of questions, further questions, about, I guess, what are we aiming for here? Like, what, what's the real benefit to having this micro footprint of an OS that doesn't get changed, except maybe you know, like Deep Geek is proposing here every now and again to to update to update security stuff. What's the real goal here? And I gave that a lot of thought before responding to Deep Geek. Uh, I came up with this idea that for the user, I think the main advantage, and and this is for for, for I don't want to say for better or for worse, but you know, take this for whatever you will in terms of value. But I think a user from the user perspective, one of the main conscious advantages is, well, I've got this OS, and if, if, if at, any, at any point I decide I've screwed up my user land too much and just want to do a reset, then I could sort of just nuke my system but keep the core of my OS intact. And I, I do feel like there's some value to that. I do feel like sometimes you do appreciate having just that core component of your operating system on a highly protected and separate, you in a separate partition sometimes literally it's a separate partition sometimes it's a a different hard drive and you can reinstall for instance slackware but you could keep that bootable section that you you feel confident in and so you're just uh, reinstalling i don't know applications outside of the uh slash usr part of your of your os or something like something like that right you can you can kind of separate that out i do imagine that there's some advantage to that and that's a very kind of surface level like, what's in it for me kind of kind of question. And I, I do feel like that's a useful thing to have. and And we have that on on Linux and Unix anyway, in a sense. I mean, that's kind of the design of the system. You've got slash usr and that houses, a bunch of the normal stuff, and you don't get into really the local modifications until you get into slash usr slash local slash bin. And unfortunately, and for whatever reason, I feel like a lot of Linux users, myself included, we ignore that. we ignore that um that system, that that methodology because we we think to ourselves, well, this is silly to have a user local bin. Because everything's local. I'm I'm the sole user of my computer, so I don't need to differentiate between user bin and user local bin. And how many times, certainly on Slackware, how many times have I uh, installed stuff straight to user bin? Well, I could give you an exact number if you wanted, um, because I can do a wc-l on var log packages... And tell you that uh I've done it exactly eight hundred and forty two thousand seven hundred and fifty three times, like all of the packages in my in 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 my slackware install they they have all been installed to user you know not not all into user bin, but they all go into my into the same place that there's there's nothing that I have differentiated, maybe there's one or two that I'm skipping over that that that, that, I, that I that I can't remember, but generally speaking, I don't intentionally. I mean, by comparison, if I do an `ls -l` on user local bin, for instance, I've got I've got one, two, three. I've got three things there, not four things. Sorry, four things. Uh, and and those are you know not even some of those aren't even real. Like Firefox is pointing out to opt. Uh, RDR six is pointing out to opt. And then I've got some little scripts that I've installed. I mean, I've got a couple of scripts that I've installed, really. Uh, some of them are fake, just for demo purposes that I've never cleared out. But yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of stuff there. A couple of things, and and but they're they're countable on just one hand of fingers. There, it's not even you know nowhere near 842,000. So point being, I've got a lot of stuff that goes to my system drive my system partition, and very, very few things that get separated into a local area. Even though I think by design, a lot of the stuff that's outside of the standard system should really be going to a local place. And and in a way, I feel like saying, okay, well, here's everything that really is important in a squash FS that you can't get near, is kind of a weird sort of way of just doing that. It's just saying, okay, well, here's clearer divisions between what you should be messing around with and what you shouldn't be messing around with, which I, I don't know if that's a bad thing, I'm just saying, or a good thing for that matter, it's just, it does, it does seem like that's, that's recognizing that a lot of us don't differentiate between the core system, like the root area, and the user area. Would it provide any of the perceived benefits of Silver Blue or Micro OS? Now, for the record, I didn't know about Micro OS until DB told me about it, but certainly would it? Would it provide any of the benefits of Silverblue? Maybe, in a way. Silverblue does a lot of stuff with C-groups, so there's a bunch of literal, in the sense of, sandboxing as a technology term, not as a thing that you put outside for kids to play in. It does sandboxing. If you have everything in a Squash FS, and then you've got applications running outside of that Squash FS, they're not really sandboxed between each other, but if you're just running flat packs, then that's something. So, I don't know. I Short story, I think there is something there. He emailed me back. I emailed him my, my very few thoughts on the subject at the time, which was essentially, I think I said, hey, look out, flat packs, uh, install stuff to slash var. So just be aware that that directory might get more... No, actually, slash, I'm sorry, home.var is where it goes. But if it's installed by root, it would be slash var, something like that. So that would be maybe activity in directories that you might not normally think that that would get that kind of activity. So he says, uh, thanks for mentioning the live CD permanently installed. Oh, because I had said, oh, this sounds kind of like just installing a, a live CD. He says, since Silverblue has installed the new image and can just go back to the old image as a choice in Grub, I think this will be the most silver ish solution. However, I'm stuck running custom compiled video drivers for NVIDIA's sake, and running ZFS Fuse uh, is now deprecated, so I'll soon be forced to custom compile ZFS drivers. Since Um, uh, due to licensing issues a live cd with zfs pre-compiled is illegal to ship so you have to do it yourself it's easier on debian than on most but the instructions are complex enough to make a sane hacker recoil in disgust and he he provides a link on how to do that Uh, so he says that's probably not going to happen he says, I did once mount a Squash FS on slash USR, and it worked fine, but I had to have the option in my slash Etsy slash FS tab to mount the original slash USR on a, a USB uh, drive for updates. Mounting slash USR worked just fine as a read-only Squash mount. Well, that's pretty good. And I did this for a while because I remember having an old laptop That had a spinning rust disk and cf cards just came out and i spotted and acquired a device to mount a cf card as a disc in a laptop it worked and i did an episode on it for talk geek to me that's his old podcast i think the idea is doable here is what i'm thinking about now let me know if you see potential pitfalls he says install a debian based system that's a standard based system only it's just text console install DKMS packages for ZFS and Nvidia drivers so that's the kernel um, method such that you can install drivers um, and that they get that your kernel gets uh, awareness of when you have to update drivers and modules and stuff Install Zorg and a light X environment Install S chroot. I don't know what S chroot is to manage multiple chroot environments easy, easily. Oh, that's probably what S chroot is. And Demons and launchers for flat packs and snaps and app images as required. Of course, app images don't require any of that stuff, but snaps, well, snaps do, and then flat pack wouldn't require a demon, but it does require flat pack. Uh, that should make a beefy yet applicationless X terminal of sorts. Build a chroot environment and put another Debian system in it and add Debian applications there. Sandbox internet applications, browsers, and so on by using flat pack or snap. If something's not available this way, ZFS can easily clone a Debian system at this point, and this can be an application application-only sandbox. S-chroot can easily run these from any menu system as well. The base system can be security updated by ma- unmounting the SquashFS system and running apt's update system. All the S-chroot-managed chroot systems can run apt's update system simultaneously via S-chroot. Um, S-chroot can be told to run a command on all of its chroots simultaneously as root. And the flat packs and snaps will update themselves, and the app images can be updated over uh, a terminal utility. I think it could work. Thoughts? Um, I mean, I think this is kind of brilliant. I would love to see this in action. I know from dealing with flat packs and snaps and app images that there are all kinds of little tiny quirks that are bound to rear their head if you were to actually implement this. I can just see it. I don't know what it'll be. It'll have something to do with permissions, locations of data. It'll be something to do with uh, can you actually access some data that under normal circumstances with some application you'd be able to to access. Or maybe a device. Can you find your microphone device? Can you find your your gamepad? Can you find something that normally, yes, you would be able to find it without even thinking about it, but because you've got everything running inside of a sandbox, inside of a sandbox, inside of a cheroot, uh, something is different, so I mean, you, you see this on Silverblue for sure, and probably Micro OS, and that's why, for instance, Silverblue has the the toolbox utility, the the thing that you launch to sort of make little pockets of of mutable air, you know, sections in within your OS. So I, I have a feeling there there will be something like that going on something there will be some surprise there um especially yeah just if you need if you need to access data from within a flatpak or a snap application or or even an app image who knows and and everything's different however it kind of sounds like it should work i mean it really does it kind of sounds like it ought to work it sounds like a crazy idea and i don't know if i would rely on it for like i don't know media production or anything like that but it does sound feasible so i don't know we'll keep We'll keep up with Deep Geek. Hopefully, he actually gives it a go and reports in. We'll find out. But uh, if if any of you, dear listeners, want to try that, then I'm sure Deep Geek wouldn't mind hearing a report from you. So yeah, let's just uh, let's see if anyone tries it. Let's see what happens, because. Boy does it sound interesting. Really interesting system design, for sure. I mean, if nothing else, it's an interesting challenge, system design-wise, you know? It's just that, if if nothing else, that's that's enough for this to be intriguing. Okay, let's get into C++ Filt. Keep wanting to make it f- conflict like conflict but it's actually filt like filter and c++ filt i thought that the the man page for this was actually quite quite good c++ filt demangles c++ and java symbols okay maybe the name in retrospect isn't the best but the the man page actually is really good so it says the c++ and java languages provide function overloading now if you've ever heard of people this is CLAT2 again, not the man page. If you've ever heard programmers talk, a lot of times you will. You'll hear people say, oh, this is an overloaded function. Or, don't worry, you can overload that function. Something like that. And if you're ever writing in, for instance, Java, with a good IDE, like NetBeans, or something like that, it'll tell you, Eclipse, whatever, it'll tell you when for instance you need to overload a function like you've invoked this function but you haven't really defined it within your application yet you need to overload it bring it into your local space and and define what exactly you want it to do and, and you get a little overload um, notation in there so unfortunately people don't often talk about what overloading is and lo and behold Right here, is hidden away in this man page about C++ filt is one of the best explanations that I've ever read about it. It says, um, which means that you can write many functions with the same name, providing that each function takes parameters of different types. And that's just a that's a beautifully written explanation of what overloading the function means. And I don't say that lightly. Um, I I've I've often I, I have a real problem with with people using uh, jargon in in inappropriate settings. And I've just I, I can't tell you. And I I think it's an easy it's an easy mistake to make as a person, like to use jargon when when your audience doesn't know what that jargon is. And the the reason for that is because we as humans we start to hear words and then we start to think that those words have now been defined and and so we forget that there are people out there who don't have the definition of those words that have become commonplace to us so we do it all the time i mean we all do it um and and it just it annoys me when i hear people talking about for instance overloading a function as 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 if though everyone knows what that means And, and i've heard it in lots of different settings and i mean it's it's a big topic to, to figure out how we can avoid that. Like, you can't possibly stop using the jargon, because that's why the jargon exists, to make communication faster and more efficient and clearer. So you wouldn't want to stop using it, and you can't possibly stop after you've used it every single time and redefine it. Um, if there was, like, maybe a, a hook that we could do where we say, if talking to person for the first time, then define jargon. If person nods, then continue. If person, you know, whatever. Something like that, maybe, but it's it's difficult. This man page defining it, though, is just a stroke of genius. I, uh, I commend the author of this man page. So th- it continues to say, in order to be able to distinguish these similarly named functions, C++ and Java encode them into a low-level assembler name, which uniquely identifies each different version. This process is known as mangling. The C++ Filt program does the inverse. It decodes, that is demangles, low-level names into user-level names so that they can be read. Okay, so just once again, this man page, my favorite man page of all time, I think, so far. This is brilliant. I mean, it doesn't assume that you know what it's talking about, and in one paragraph, just one paragraph, it explains, it gives you all the context you need. And I think it's fair to say that if you don't know what it's talking about after that one paragraph, then you know the unspoken alert there is, or not really unspoken, it's the alert is, if you don't know, then you don't know enough about C++ and Java languages, to proceed with this tool, because it says right up front the C and Java languages provide function overloading. And then it explains what the overloading is, and, and then it continues on to talk about how it's achieved. If you don't understand it, then you need to back up and do more research on C and Java. And I think that's fair. Like everything has to start somewhere. They're announcing where it's starting, and then it's breaking all the base terms down for us in case we're not there and now we're all there now we understand so the assembler language the assembler code rather takes functions that are named the same but are unique enough to tell them apart and gives them a unique identifier and we know how to do that now we've we've done this we've done or rather we know how to look at the assembler code we have done this in the previous episode so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna open up a file called I guess test.cpp. so this is C++ and I'm going to create something. I'm going to do some function overloading. So we'll do an hash include iostream with angle brackets around the iostream. That's to get us fancy little functions like c out and endl endl And we'll using namespace standard std semicolon. And we're going to create two functions that we are going to call. Uh, let's call them penguin. So we really really know that this is this is stuff that we created. I don't like using terms that that could be something built into the language or something, you know, something that's hard to tell. So Penguin, that's pretty unique. So, okay, so first we'll do hash include Iostream with angle brackets around the Iostream. That gives us uh, the cout function so that we can print stuff out to our terminal easily. Also, I think I think that also provides indl, indl the inline function. So then using namespace standard std semicolon, and then we'll do void penguin parentheses int i close parentheses open curly brace c out redirect redirect towards c out quote integer is space close quote redirect redirect i so that's whatever we whatever this function received as an integer i that's what we're going to use and then redirect redirect indel, endl e n d l for the end line and then semicolon and then close the curly brace now we're going to create another function called penguin, again, void penguin. So that's, this is, you know, under normal circumstances, and certainly in C, not C++, that would just, that would break our compile process. It would, it would tell me that it had received the same name that's already been declared, can't continue, but we're overloading. So this is penguin, and then parentheses int i, comma, int in close parentheses, open curly brace. So this penguin is distinguished from the first penguin because this one requires int i and int in. The other one only required int i. So we'll do c out, redirect, redirect towards the c out, quote added together, close quote, redirect, redirect, i plus n. Just do some quick math there. And then redirect, redirect, the semicolon, close curly brace. So in a really nice application I guess we can do that actually I was gonna say in a nice program we would we would give ourselves the ability yeah no we're not going to do that so in, an, in a good application we would give ourselves the ability to define what int i and what int in we're gonna be this is a quick example we're not doing C++ tutorials here we're just doing a overloading function tutorial so int space main parentheses parentheses curly brace penguin parentheses 3 close parentheses semicolon and then penguin parentheses 3 comma 6 close parentheses semicolon so what's that what that what that has done is called one function called penguin with one integer and then it calls again penguin but with two integers and I think you know how that'll go Uh, return 0 semicolon and close curly brace and if you don't know how it'll go you'll you'll find out so we save that and now rather than well I guess we could we could compile it first just for fun g plus plus test.cpp. By default, it names our output a.out, so I'll do a dot slash a.out. Integer is three added together, nine. That's correct, right? Because we called the first penguin with an argument of three, and the second one as an argument with three and six. Now, again, just note that we haven't given it extra features, like I can't I can't do a uh, dot slash a dot out uh, four and expect it to actually know what that four was for. So it still says integer is three added together nine. So it, it'll always say integer is three added together is nine because we hard coded the value. If We wanted to to get the the integer like to, to be able to define the integers, we would have to add options to our c plus or, plus or we'd have to we'd have to look at the positional arguments at least and import those into our code. And that's a completely separate process that has really no advantage to what we're doing here. Okay, so what we are doing is we're trying to find out what C++filt does. And the way that we get assembler code, if you'll recall from last time, is actually if we were in a classroom setting, I would say, can you recall how we would do how we did that last time? And if you do, then congratulations. Um, I I do remember. It is g++-capital S, and if you'll recall that that runs GCC or g++ I guess in this case um, up until or it compiles up to the assembler code and then it stops it doesn't it does not complete the process of a normal compile so g plus dash capital F test dot cpp so this should put this should output a file called test dot s did it yes it did so now i can do most on test dot s and i can look at it and i see a bunch of different um notations here and You know, to my untrained eye, none of these make any sense. Absolutely none of these mean anything to me. So I've got things like dot file testcpp, Okay, admittedly that, that makes sense. Local underscore l eight underscore underscore io init, dot com with two Ms. underscore zs l eight underscore uh, underscore io init, comma one comma one, dot section dot ro dot LCO, colon dot string integer is. So some of this is looking vaguely familiar. Here's a dot text, if you'll recall we were looking at um dot text sections with adder two line uh, dot global underscore z7 penguin penguin with an I at the end yeah so there's a bunch of stuff in there and I don't know what it, any of it really means but there's a bunch of stuff that we could kinda latch on to it's enough to work with I think uh, let's see how many lines that is I'm just kinda curious w test dot s it's 153 lines and the original the original code for test dot cpp is 17 lines. I think it's always interesting to just kind of differentiate or to look at the difference between yeah, what what gets compiled and what it looks like before the source code is, or in its source code form. So anyway, we're looking at a simpler code and we know that C++ filled actually I don't think we do know anything about it yet. So if you do a man uh, c++ filt, then you get uh, things like dash underscore. That's a cool one. Dash underscore is strip underscore. So dash dash strip dash underscore. On some systems, both C and C++ uh, compilers put an underscore in front of every name. For example, the C name foo gets the low-level name underscore foo. This option removes the initial underscore. Whether c++ filter removes the underscore by default is target dependent. Um, dash in, it says don't strip the initial underscore, dash dash no, dash strip, dash underscore, do not remove the initial underscore, dash p, dash dash no, dash params, when demangling the name of a function, do not display the types of the function, the the types of the function's parameters, Uh, types, no verbose, formatting stuff, yeah, so it seems like, generally speaking, we should just be able to do c plus plus filt and then some name according to the man page it's just we, all we need to do is give it a f- a symbol rather a symbol from the application which we've looked at and we found a bunch of different different underscore notation objects in this assembler code so we could kind of just take our pick really I mean and we might as well start at the top so I'm going to look at most on test.s again well here was that underscore zstla io in it so let's copy that and do Uh, paste after C++ filt. and that tells me that underscore ZSTL8 underscore underscore io init is the standard colon colon underscore underscore I/O in so that seems like a pretty low-level kind of function um, that probably isn't super specific to our application, to this particular ap- application. But then, if I look down one more section here, I we found we've got that underscore z7 penguini, and if I do a C++ filter on underscore z7 penguini, then I get as the result penguin parentheses int close parentheses, and that's that. That's that's that one function. The first function that we wrote that only accepts a single a single um, integer. So now, if I scroll further down into a similar section that's named .lc, so that was from the section called .lco, or sorry, .lc0. If I scroll down a little bit, there's there's some stuff in the middle here that, that 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 sort of references a bunch of stuff. Like I see C out here mentioned, so I kind of feel like that might be more more built-in stuff. But then there's this other section that's kind of similar. Dot LC one, and there's a dot string added together. Dot text. Dot global seven uh, z seven uh, penguin e. So uh, z seven penguin, and then two eyes at the end. Can't imagine what that's going to be, so I'll paste it in after c++ filt, and oh, look at that, it is, it's the function, it's the penguin function, but this one is two integers, int, int. So those are the, those are the designators of those two functions, and then of course if you, if you do, like, um, what was it, type, or no type, maybe it was no type, there was an option in there, types, uh, types, no, uh, there, I thought there was something, oh, no params, that was it, no params no-params. dash params. Okay, so if I do c++ filt-no-params dash, dash, no dash params on either one of them, really, um, then I just get the name of the function. So I'm not really sure why I would want to do that, but who knows. So th- there's the name of the function. Well, I guess that might be one reason you would want to do that. Maybe you're doing some kind of, you maybe you're scripting something and you want to find any overloaded functions uh, in this particular thing, and so you just want the name of the function so that you know what to look for. Who knows? Um, yeah, so there's a couple of different options, as you, as you can kind of see. There's, there's a couple of things that you might need just to tweak the output, mostly, is, are the options there. And I think that's everything I've got to say, really, about C Filt. I mean, it's not, as you can see, it's not a super complex application. It, is, uh, it, 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 it does one thing, and it does it well, and that is it demangles stuff back into something that you would recognize from the code base if you were to look at the code base. I kind of feel like it's probably time for a cup of coffee, so let me go do that. You go get your own cup of coffee, and then we'll come back here for more Ben Noodles. <laughs> I'm back with coffee. I hope you have your coffee ready because we're about to go through DLL tool. There's no man page for DLL tool. It didn't deserve one, I guess. I'm not sure. It's it's um it's got to be a a niche utility this one, right? Cuz I mean DLL I think aren't used really at all for Linux. Um I mean I've never seen one distributed with Linux. I've seen them distributed with games that run on Wine, for instance, or or more recently, uh, that run on Steam, Proton or, or Photon Proton, I think, right? Yeah. So I've seen DLLs, but I I don't know I don't know much about them. So I read up a little bit on them in a on a Cygwin website. Cygwin being C Y G W I N. It's the Unix environment that you can install on Windows, or one of them, I guess. The other one is WSL now. But at the for for a very long time, it was the only environment. Well, maybe not the only. Certainly the, the the main environment. Uh, I don't know if there are others. And And it says that there are three parts to a DLL. Well, first of all, it says DLLs are dynamic link libraries, which means that they're linked into your program at runtime instead of build time. There are three parts. The exports, the code and data, and the import library. So the code and data are the part of the things that you write. is the functions and the variables and all that other stuff. They are usually compiled into things like object files, they can be put into DLLs. They are not part of your .exe. The exports contain a list of functions and variables that the DLL makes available to other programs, so that makes sense. And then the import library is a regular Unix-like .a library, but it only contains the tiny bit of information needed to tell the OS how your program interacts with, or imports, the DLL. This information is linked into your .exe, Again, don't exactly know what that is. This is also generated by DLL tool. So, I mean, I know, just to be clear, I know theoretically what a .exe is. I mean, it's like an executable file, I guess, right? But I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know the nuances of things like your functions and variables and such not being placed into the exe. Well, I guess the the nuance is that it's not placed into your exe. It is a DLL. So it's external to your to your executable, which sounds like modularity. I like modularity, so I guess maybe that's a good thing. I don't know any about anything about the specifics, so I don't really have an opinion. I guess from what I can gather, and this is just a working theory. So if you know better, please do correct me. But as far as I can tell, DLL tool is not. Useful on Linux, with a possible exception of maybe when you're cross compiling for, for when you're targeting Windows. And as I have not done that myself, I have no, I have really no, no way of understanding what that would involve except to learn, um, what is it, min, min GW or, or whatever it is, the cross compiling tool for from Linux to Windows. So there is that option, but just to talk about DLL tool, I like don't know that that's going to be worth that amount of investment, uh, especially since I don't really intend to compile out to Windows myself anytime soon. So I'm going to say, generally speaking, DLL tool isn't something you're going to use in your tool chain when compiling code uh, on Slackware, with the, the specialized exception of when you're targeting Windows, when you're cross compiling for Windows, uh, in which case you are producing PE32 executables that go. That, that, that talk in Windows language and can be used by Windows. DLL on Windows, as far as I know, there's no way to really use a DLL file on Linux. I don't believe that that Linux knows how to use a DLL. I mean, you can through Wine, but that's obviously through Wine, so you're you're now using different calls for that to, to work. Um, Linux natively has no use for DLL, and therefore I'm not going to go in-depth with DLL tool. It just isn't isn't something that that makes sense, and so we're skipping over it, sort of. That's that's the long and short of it. Um, you you can try it. It is definitely something that you can can try, but I was not able to produce any useful output with DLL tool, and I certainly wasn't able to um, I certainly wasn't able to make a, a any kind of library that was usable with with either GCC or DLL tool, or the combination of the two. There are some some tutorials online that I did find that talked a little bit about. There was one go- pretty good one on Sigwin's site, but it just it, it didn't. It ended up not applying in the end because it didn't produce something that could actually run. Uh, and the one time that I did make something that would run, I, I realized all I'd actually done was make a shared object and linked and sort of linked that linked to it from another shared object an object file um and and therefore i was i just named it .dll but it was actually you know a .o it was actually a shared object a object file whatever so yeah it didn't quite work out for me so that's dll tool the next the next one is dll wrap which um again has no man page and apparently um it's a deprecated tool anyway so I'm not sure how useful that is either it is a, a tool that you you can kind of get the same results uh, by doing ld dash dash shared and and even then once again it's it's all it has stuff to do with that M, M, min GW stuff uh, where you're cross compiling and that's just not my area of interest so I'm going to skip over Dll wrap as well sadly the confusion continues with a title a, a, a command called DWp which uh, again there's no man page for this so man DwP nothing dwp dash dash help comes up with a little bit of uh, help I guess it says Dwp options file and it it gives me a couple of different options. Dash H for help, which we're looking at here. Dash E for EXE, or dash dash exec EXE. And it says, get list of DWO files from EXE defaults output to EXE.DWP. Dash O file, dash dash output file, set output DWP file name, verbose version, verify only. So, what I'm getting here is, well, what I got from, from that, maybe in relation, because of its relation to... Versus proximity to DLL tool and DLL wrap, which of course the proximity is possibly completely erroneous because it's A B C D and then DLL DLL and then DWP. So I have no idea if there is actually any kind of relation, but th- it does say dash exe and dash dash exec exe. So there's that exe thing again. So I keep thinking, okay, well it's got to have something to do with an exe file. So I happen to have uh, Wine installed, so I can I, I installed just now notepad++ so dwp dash o blah because I don't know what else to call it dash e for exec or or exe whatever and then point it to my wine drive underscore C program files x86 uh, notepad++ notepad++ dot exe and says error or fatal error not an elf object file okay well we know what object files are so we can do a w, dwp-e on how about our old hello.o file, and it says segmentation fault. So that didn't work either. Okay, well, what if we just do wp-e um, hello? So that's that's the compiled version of hello.o. Oh, that was the, the, the actual executable, which I should execute right now. Yeah, it works. It says hello world. So uh, dwp-e dot slash hello. Segmentation fault again, okay. How about just dwp no options dot slash hello. No output file specified. Well, according to the help, it defaults... Oh no, that's the dot dash e. Okay, so apparently didn't say that this was required, but apparently it is. So dash dash output, blah. And that seems to have worked. What did it do exactly? I don't exactly know. So, file blah says it's an ELF 64-bit LSB relocatable, stripped. So I should be able to execute it, but apparently not, because I do a .slash blah, and it doesn't seem to to execute blah at all. So if I do a cat on blah, uh, it looks like there's some, some binary... Data and a string that says debug underscore cu underscore index dot debug underscore tu underscore index dot sh str tab and then some some stuff that I can't read. So uh, it does seem to be. I mean, I'll I'll do like a really quick just list. It's 400 bytes, so it's a tiny little file. Like I say, it it claims to be ELF 64-bit LSB relocatable, um, but it doesn't seem to be able to execute or anything like that so I'm not really sure what I've created here Um, and if I even if I give it the executable bit and do a dot slash blah tells me it cannot execute the binary file exact format error so I don't know what I've produced I guess I've produced a DWP maybe so if I do DWP or DWO DWP dot slash hello output blah DWP I mean not that I would imagine that that would help at all if I do a file on blah.dwp, same kind of information. So dwp help again. Uh, I, I guess we could I could try it with the verbose flag. So dwp dash dash verbose. dot slash hello output blah.dwp. And the verbosity simply echoes the file that I fed it. So dwp dash dash verbose. Dot slash hello output blah.dwp. The 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 one line that I get in return is dot slash hello, as if to verify that that is the file that, that I asked it to work on. Uh, I could do a dash dash verify only. I could mix that in there. Uh, doesn't, doesn't seem to have, to have done anything different, really. Um, it, it does say that it cannot output, cannot open wp, which of course I was, I would earmarked as my output file, so I'm not really sure why, why it's, producing an error about the thing that I'm asking it to output. That seems really odd as well to me. So yeah, this this application, this command does not seem to make sense to me in any way, and I cannot find a good explanation of it online. The one thing that I did find was on Debian, .debian manpages.debian.org, which claims that DWP from the bin utils package, uh, this is the man page, and it says it's the dwarf packaging utility. Synopsis, same thing. Um, The the Description, it's the same exact output, so "-o", exe, or rather "-e", exe "-o", file, v for verbose, or verify only, and so on. Reporting bugs, it gives me a bugzilla, and that's it. That's that's the long and short of it. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me at all. It doesn't seem to work. When it does work, it produces something that doesn't doesn't appear to be useful to anything that I've got on my machine. So I guess this is my very long-winded of, way of saying that I'm going to skip that one as well. All right, let's see if we if we can get out of the, the Ds and get into something interesting. And the next one is called Elf Edit. And that does have a man page. It... Is an application to update the ELF header of an ELF file. ELF edit updates the ELF header of ELF files which have matching ELF machine and file types. The options control how and which fields in the ELF header should be updated. ELF file dot 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 are the ELF files to be updated. So that's in the um, in the description. 32-bit and 64-bit ELF files are supported, as are archives containing ELF files. So what this does is it looks at ELF. Well, it modifies ELF headers, and that's part of what you see when you do the, a file on something. Like when you do file, hello, you get the ELF 64-bit LSB executable, x86-64, and so on. That's little bits and pieces of the header information of that ELF file. Let's give a head a little bit to read ELF, and that is uh, one of the commands in bin utils. So if you do read ELF-H on, for instance, hello... Then you get a, a, a nice list of all of the things that it has. ELF header, magic, 7F, 45, 4C, 46, and so on. Class, ELF64. There's that little token. Um, data version 1, current, OS ABI, Unix, GNU, ABI version 0, type, exec, executable file. So let's, and there's machine, advanced micro devices, x86 64, version 0, x1, and so on. So there's type exec executable file, right? And if I do a dot slash hello, it tells me hello world, so that is true. This this thing is. And if I do a file hello, again, it tells me yes, it's an executable. So that all sort of makes sense. But with elf edit, according to that man page, we can change this stuff. For instance, the output type. Well, according to our listing here, the type is exec executable file, and the man page says that supported exec uh, no, not exec, um, types are, uh, the supported ELF file types are rel, exec, and then dyn all right well let's see if we that now this will break this application so um, let's do an elf edit dash dash output dash type uh, equals rel and then we'll do oh that's r e l not not r-h-e-l r-e-l and we'll do that to hello no output usually means success so if we do a dot slash hello it says dot slash hello cannot execute binary file exact format error why might that be well if we do a file on hello now we get l64 bit lsb relocatable, x86-64 version 1 with debug info, not stripped. So in other words, we've we've told our system now that this is not an executable file at all, it's a relocatable file. And the other one was dyn. so if I do that and do a file hello, now it thinks it's a 64-bit LSB uh, pi executable statically linked, not stripped, and so on. And if I execute that, uh, segmentation fault. Ouch. All right, so let's try to fix this. Elf edit output type equals I think what it was it? Just exec I think. Hello and now dot slash hello hello world and it works again. So all we've been doing is changing the attributes of this of of the file that this uh, of the information that this file gives about itself. So I'm I'm setting it back to rel for a moment. Elf edit dash dash output dash type equal r e l hello and now if I do a read elf dash h for headers on hello then I have all the same information, except type is set to rel, relocatable file, um, and and so on. So when I set it back to exec, of course, and I do readelf-h, uh, hello, then type is set back to exec executable file. So you could do that um, if you needed to. I don't, I can't, myself imagine the need to do that. I don't know what the circumstance would be for me to ha- to run into the situation where I would need elf edit to fix the situation, but I, I'm just ex- like imagining maybe some corruption in the header um, portion, or the loss of header information, and maybe you're re- resetting it or maybe you're doing testing, bug testing, and you want to set something. I don't know, but that's that's elf edit, and I guess technically that's also read elf, which, um, yeah, is 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 exactly what it what you know essentially what I just demonstrated, except a lot more of it. So dash h is for the file header. Uh, you could also do uh, read elf dash l hello and get a bunch more information about like um the program headers, Uh, you can look at section headers, and and this is all, if this sounds vaguely familiar, then it's because a lot of this stuff is looked at and introspected by adder2 line and, um, and other debugging tools, so those are kind of kind of useful potentially. Depends on what you're doing, I guess. But yeah, that that's that's the kind of stuff that you can get with readelf. And there's lots and lots of different um, a lot of a lot of different options for that. So just have a look at the dash dash help or the man page, because you can look at all kinds of things. You can look at notes. You can look at headers. You can look at um, you can look at each individual sections uh, individually. You can look at symbols a symbol table. That's pretty interesting to look at, so if you do readelf-s hello, you get quite a lot of output, detailing each and every little symbol compiled into this application. And once again, you'll be quite surprised by just what the output is on such a small... like, what is hello? It was like a... well, I don't know. I guess we could find out. wc-l hello.c, I think this one was, 15 lines of code, and uh, the output of readelf-s hello is uh, 1,870 lines, so qu- qu- quite a lot of output there. So that's readelf, a really interesting sort of tool to get to get information from your binary file. And I think that's it. I think we should end on a high note of getting out of the D section and into the E section, uh, even though we also skipped ahead to the R section. But uh, next up will be Gprof and LD_BFD and LD_Gold and NM and Object Copy and Object Dump and so on. So, come back for more bin-udels next time on Good New World Order. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and SlackerMedia.info. I will see you next time. be free from all pain and from all anxiety.